All right. If you have your Bibles with you, we are continuing in Mark. Action-packed Mark. The book of Mark is in the New Testament towards the, the back of the Bible. If you look at the whole Bible itself, toward the back of it. Um, it's in the New Testament, second book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark. The Malachi, Matthew, Mark, if you're looking for it. If you need a Bible, there's a blue one in the pew back in front of you. We'd love for you to open that one up with us. Uh, the Word of God is so precious to us. The Word of God grows faith. The Word of God gives faith. And so we want all of us to be reading together. And if you need a Bible, take that blue one home with you. Uh, we love giving those blue Bibles away. We've been uh, giving a lot away the last couple of years, and we're excited about that. So please uh, take that blue one if you need that. Uh, so Mark, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to say thank you. Um, I got many text messages and Facebook messages. Uh, some of you might know I've been uh, dealing with a, a hurt knee since Thursday. Uh, it's not mine. It's Patrick Mahomes' hurt knee uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. But I appreciate all the kind texts and Facebook messages. That's a dangerous joke. You know, that's a dangerous joke. Um, okay. Looks like we're all settling in. How, how patient must you be with your pastor, huh? I'm just sanctifying you all the time, aren't I? You're welcome. You're going to thank me later for all this patience you're having to learn through me, for me. Okay, book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. We're just going to jump right in. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. That's a big number 3, a little number 7. Been following Jesus, his early ministry, Crowds are following Jesus. Jesus is performing miracles. Jesus is dealing with crowds who are coming for him for other reasons than salvation. Um, and we're going to start big number three, little number seven. Join me in reading, if you will. I'll read aloud. You read yourself. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, remember that, all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits, whenever the demons saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Demons make a really bad PR department, don't they? Strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain... And called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed, he made twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, remember that, they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he would give the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is the Sons of Thunder. Isn't that the coolest name ever? Sons of Thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas 
and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, lots of names. Why in the world are we hearing all these names? Is that really important? Why are we hearing all these places? Why are we hearing all these names? What is going on? What is going on with all these names? Well, the names in Mark are super important. We're at the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has come. We have seen Him declared the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This guy is a big deal. And now the question is, who has He come for? Who is included in His ministry to take away the sins of the world? Who does He want? And more importantly, for my heart, who doesn't He want? Well, the names are important because the first thing that we learn in this passage is Jesus accepts all who repent and believe. You remember his message. We know what he's been preaching. We know what he's been teaching. We know what's important to his heart. The important thing to his heart is to preach the kingdom of God is near. You can become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is near. So repent, turn from your sins, and believe the good news that Jesus has come to take away your sins. All these names, all these places mean all who repent and believe are welcome. Now we might, in our modern world, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you know a lot about Christianity, you've heard that so much that it almost loses its meaning. But John tells us, he, he starts us out and he says, this huge crowd was coming to Jesus and he accepted them and he loved them, he was compassionate toward them, he preached the good news of Jesus, he, he healed them, he loved them, he, he loved these people, and where did they come from? They came from Galilee. Well, that makes sense, that's not really that big of a deal, because they're in Galilee, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They came from Jerusalem and Judea, yeah, good Israelites, yeah, Jesus would come for Israel, not just Israel, but Jerusalem, the city of God with the temple in it, with the priests in it. Jerusalem comes, those religious people come to Jesus. That makes total sense. And then we start to hear about people that we wouldn't imagine being near Jesus. Idiomia? It's Edom. Edom? Sidon? And Tyre? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. People in Sidon and Tyre, that probably means they're not Jews. Do you know, Jesus, are you sure? Do you know who you might get if you share the message with these people? You might get Gentiles. You might get non-Jews. Now, surely non-Jews cannot be accepted. Surely you must follow all the commands and the laws and be a good Jew before God will accept you. In our modern world, 
that's so globalized, we might not, it might not shock us, but 2,000 years ago, the thought that God's message of salvation going to non-Jews is scandalous. The thought that God's message of salvation goes out to all people, regardless of DNA, regardless of skin color, regardless of what country you're from, regardless of what culture you're from, that idea was scandalous. All who repent and believe are saved. The Bible in no uncertain terms reveals a God who is totally and unabashedly a hater of the sin of racism. Period. And Jesus joyfully confronts racism at many times and at many places and with many people, even going so far as to make some of the heroes of his parables someone of a different race. Wherever you're from, whatever you look like, whatever language you speak, whatever your culture, repent and believe be saved. The names are important. And then we see at the end, those are the names at the front that were scandalous. Then we see names at the end that are even maybe more scandalous. You see, as Jesus calls his apostles, you and you and you and you and you, he calls the 12 men together, we see something scandalous. We see that Jesus calls a tax collector and he calls a zealot. Now, if you've been with us, you remember who tax collectors are. Tax collectors are traitors to Israel. Tax collectors are puppets of the Roman Empire who have come in and control things and kill a bunch of people in Israel. That's who tax collectors were. Tax collectors were absolutely despised by the people of Israel. As they ranked sin, tax collector and murderer go hand in hand. That's what Israel thought of tax collectors. And Jesus says, you come and be with me. That is scandalous. And so we see one end of the political spectrum, a guy who is the pu- was the puppet of Rome, and Jesus calls this guy. Can you imagine what's going through the minds of the other apostles? That guy? Have you ever had that thought in your mind with people at church? That guy? And then just to put an exclamation mark on the call of Jesus for every people, we've got the tax collector rubbing shoulders with a zealot. Now, who is a zealot? Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a Jewish political party that was absolutely 100% devoted in their commitment to overthrow the Roman Empire. They didn't care if they had to kill people to do it. They're going to throw, they're going to kick the Romans out. In fact, zealots would rise up from time to time and fight the Romans only to be put down violently. And in a few decades after this, zealots will rise up again and fight the Romans 
And Romans is tired of it at this point. So they just, the Romans come in and destroy all of Jerusalem. Including the temple of God. So what do you think Simon the Zealot thinks about Matthew the tax collector? Jesus accepts all who repent and believe. Can you imagine the tension between the tax collector and Simon the Zealot? Jesus' followers have always had different ideas, different politics, different desires, different preferences. And they have one thing in common, and that one thing overshadows everything else. They have in common that they have repented and believed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. commercial break if church if Jesus chose the tax collector and Simon the zealot and told them to get along and make faithful followers of Jesus what does he want for you and that person sitting in the pew across from you that you can't stand what does he want from you If Jesus calls Simon the Zealot to love and sacrifice for Matthew the tax collector, is there anything that goes on in church to which you should not love your brothers and sisters? Is there? No. If they can do it, we can do it. Ethnicity, geography, skin color, DNA is not a barrier. All come and repent and believe and enter into the kingdom of God. All can. Politics, preferences, and desires do not bar you from entering into the kingdom of God. And this passage just calls out to gospel-believing churches and says, be unified in Jesus Put your preferences and politics aside and be unified for the cause of Christ. And finally, what this says to us is that even sinfulness is not a barrier to repenting and believing the good news of Jesus Christ. We see tax collectors... And tax collectors and sinners are what they're called often. We see that. But I want to talk about one name in there that Jesus pulled close to himself. Judas, the one who betrayed him. Now, to the best of our understanding, Judas was probably not genuinely saved. However, Jesus calls him into his inner circle. To be near Jesus, he calls him to be near to Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus knowing that this man is going to sell him out to a horrendous, horrible, painful, humiliating death in just a few years. Jesus calls him to himself. Calls him to be near. That's what Mark says. He picked out, he chose 12 to be near in fellowship. 
We see him call near. Why? To help in the mission to bring the message of repentance and belief for the salvation to the world. Judas probably preached this message. More than likely, he cast out demons. He was certainly loved by Jesus and treated kindly by Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the compassion and mercy? And can you, we can only imagine and believe that Jesus' heart broke for Judas, knowing that he would reject He would reject the invitation to repent and believe. If Jesus is willing for Judas to come close, if Jesus, Jesus calls for Judas to repent and believe, does our sinfulness disqualify us? Surely not. Your background, your sinfulness, whatever you are struggling with right now, Jesus calls you. You are not disqualified. So the names tell us that the kingdom of God will be filled with citizens of every physical, geographic, ethnic, language, sin, and political background. Therefore, there will be no accolades or honors for races, nations, tribes, tongues, political parties or for levels of righteousness or depths of sinfulness, you're not going to get a medal for being righteous. You're not going to get a medal for being an American. All come repent and believe. All are called to repent and believe the good news that Jesus saves sinners and all are invited. And that is fabulous news. And this church prays and we, we, we hope we hope, we hope, we hope that you have heard that call, that no matter who you are, where you are, no matter your sinfulness, no matter your skin color, no matter your bank account, no matter who you vote for, it doesn't matter. Jesus calls, repent and believe. And his death on the cross opens the way to be a citizen of the kingdom of God forever. And that call is for you. And the tragedy is this. Although the merciful invitation to find forgiveness and reconciliation with God goes out to any and all who repent and believe, the tragedy is that billions and billions of us in our sinfulness will not repent and believe. Jesus will say it this way in Matthew 7. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few find it. What can we learn from this passage about those who reject Jesus, those who reject the call? I think we can learn a few things. I think we can learn something from the demons. What can we learn from the demons about rejecting Jesus? Let's read verse, verse 11 again together. Big number three, little number 11 goes, and whenever the unclean spirits, that's the demons, whenever the, the demons saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I think this tells us 
a couple things. I think this tells us, number one, that knowledge about Jesus does not necessarily mean someone is saved by Jesus. Are you with me? Knowing facts about Jesus does not mean you are saved by Jesus. You know who the best theologians are in the New Testament? Besides Jesus, you know who the best theologians are? The best pe- who knows more about God and about Jesus than anybody else we find? The demons. The demons do. They recognize Jesus quickly and clearly. They recognized Jesus by the word that he preached. They believed his message that the kingdom of God was near. And it terrified them. They knew before any, almost anybody else that he was the son of God. They had a correct understanding about his power and they were correctly afraid of him. And so Mark, what he likes to do is he likes to take all these people The crowd and the apostles, and there's a fog over them. The crowd doesn't really know who Jesus is. The apostles aren't really sure. I mean, they're kind of starting to learn, but they've got a cloud. And the irony is those two groups of people are put to shame by the knowledge of the demons. That's what Mark is trying to do. He's highlighting the irony in that the crowd sought Jesus not for who he was, but for his miracles, but it's the demons who knew who he really was. Being right with God means more than knowing facts about Jesus. Being right with God, being right with God might start by knowing Jesus. Sure, by knowing about Jesus, sure. But it must evolve into knowing Jesus in a personal way. It must It means knowing Jesus through repentance from sin and in belief about who he really is. It means knowing Jesus and loving who he is and being committed to who he is. But the demons knew lots about Jesus, but that knowledge did not lead to love or commitment. The point is this, that the knowledge about who Jesus is is good, but it must lead to knowing Jesus in repentance, belief, love, and commitment. This is especially scary for church people. Because church people might equate biblical trivia with being right with God through Jesus. Many of us church people may find comfort in our facts about Jesus while we remain outside of his forgiveness because we don't know him, love him, and commit to him. I've known many, many Christians in churches who can win at biblical trivia, but they are also the most most divisive, unloving people in church. know many people like that knowledge of Jesus needs to lead us to kindness and grace and mercy it takes more than knowing facts about Jesus it takes knowing him and loving him I think the demons show us one more thing that's even more troubling is that those who haven't repented and believed, for those who haven't repented and believed, a fear of Jesus 
is not out of place. Fear of Jesus, for those who have not repented and believed, is a correct feeling. It's not the only feeling we want you to have about Jesus. But that's a correct feeling. The demons of immense strength and power and wickedness are rendered a puddle on the ground in the presence of Jesus. They know Jesus. They know what Jesus has promised to do. And they're terrified. In chapter 1, we see Jesus' first encounter with demons in Mark. And the demons are terrified and they scream. He says they scream in terror and they say, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons know Jesus will someday throw them into hell. And the demons' theology is spot on. Jesus, as the Holy One of God, will not tolerate sin in his universe forever. There will come a time when all sin and those who bring sin into the world will be cast out of his beloved creation into hell. And that includes the demons, and that includes men and women who don't accept the good news of Jesus. Jesus will do this for at least three reasons. Why will he do this? He'll do this for at least three reasons. Number one, he deserves a totally righteous people and kingdom. Jesus deserves a totally righteous people and kingdom. Second reason, his holiness is so total and all-consuming that sin cannot remain in his presence forever. We see an example of this, that the best we've got, prophets and, and apostles, as they, as they have visions of being in the presence of, of Jesus and of God the Father, you know what they do? They'll say, hey, how you doing, buddy? I'm glad I'm here. What do they do? They fall to the floor like dead men. Third reason, in his love for us, his people, he longs to give us a kingdom free from suffering and violence and hate and tears. And to do this, he must remove sin. And so please hear me. Please hear me. Jesus is going to remove sin from the universe. It's going to happen. No exceptions. And he will make this world sinless in two ways. Please listen. If you, if you listen to anything, please listen to this. Okay? Jesus will make this world sinless in two ways. He will pay the price for the sins of his people. And he will make us sinless by writing holiness on our hearts, by writing the law of God on our hearts, by giving us a new heart. He will make us sinless by filling us with God, the Holy Spirit. So someday we will never sin again. 
Jesus will wipe sin out, and he comes as a man who's going to die on the cross, and he calls out, he wants that way. He wants to wipe sin off the face of the earth that way. He comes, he says, oh, come to me and repent and believe you'll be citizens of the kingdom of God, not a citizen of hell. Come and repent. That's what he wants. That's the first way, by taking the penalty for us, for our sin on the cross, wiping that away, and then making it so that we will become sinless someday. But that is not the only way. Jesus will also make the world sinless by removing sinners from the world and place them in their own kingdom called hell. And so we see that the demons approach Jesus and they have a correct feeling of fear for there is no redemption for them. Jesus' call of repent and believe does not go out to them. But we have hope. We have hope. But we make this connection as a demon. That was the theology of hell. And we make that connection between demons and, and unrepentant people, people who reject Jesus' call. We make this connection in many places, but we make this connection Primarily in Matthew 25, these are Jesus' words about those who reject Jesus' offer. When the Son of Man, Jesus says, comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. Every one of us will be gathered before Him. And He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, get this, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so the point is this, if the demons in their correct knowledge and understanding about Jesus, have a correct fear about Jesus. For those of us outside of the forgiveness of Jesus, if we knew better, we would be afraid too. A few more thoughts on this difficult subject. Although this is an unpopular subject to preach and teach about, and it's not a fun subject to be thinking about, to believe in Jesus' message is to believe that hell exists. We understand hell because Jesus taught on the subject more than anyone else. And since Jesus taught on hell, and since hell is real, and since hell is terrible, and since hell is eternal, it is profoundly unloving and hypocritical for us as God's people to withhold the news about hell to unbelievers in an effort to appear nice or kind or polite or modern. We must take the words of our Savior 
And finally, fear is a correct response in some cases to Jesus, but it's not the only response. It's not the best response, or it's not the ultimate response we should have. There's all kinds of things, even for non-believers, all kinds of responses to Jesus we need. Have, be in awe of his beauty and his kindness. Be thankful for his mercy and his grace. He's coming to you, offering his blood and his body as a, as a way to pay for your sins so that you can be in heaven forever. How merciful is he? He pulls in Judas, who will betray him to the cross, and he proclaims the gospel around Judas for years. How merciful is he? Be thank- we need to be thankful. That's a great, be thankful. We need to have a commitment to him. So those are some observations about demons from demons. Let's take some observations about believers. Let's read again together 13 and 15. Verse 13 and 15 goes like this. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Okay, what are some observations we can have for those who repent and believe? For those of us who have repented and believed, Jesus gets all the credit. Jesus gets all the credit. In our wickedness and our sinfulness, we are not pursuing Jesus. He's pursuing us. Romans 3 says it this way, none seek God. So we, in our sinfulness, are running full steam toward hell and we're liking it and we're enjoying it and that's where we want to be and want to be away from Jesus. And then Jesus comes and he calls Remember how Jesus called? If you've been with us in Mark, how does Jesus call? You, three fishermen, you, come. And they come. You, tax collector that everybody in this country hates, you, come. They come. My kid's favorite story, Zacchaeus in the tree. What a crazy story. What does Jesus say? He's walking, this little guy's climbing a tree. Who, is, who, who does that? Who climbs a tree? What a weirdo. He looks up and goes, you, Zacchaeus, Come. They come. We do not find Jesus on our own. He calls us. He seeks us. He pursues us. He desires us. Believer, do you see that? He said He calls those He desires. He desired you, believer. He called you, believer. And it is all to His credit It is by grace, Ephesians says, a free gift. You have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It is a free gift. Here, it's a free gift. You didn't earn it. Christian, believer, brothers and sisters, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary should be free how gracious and merciful is he 
He says all can come and be saved. Not all who work hard enough. Not all who are righteous enough. Not all who are in the right church or the right country. Not all who've got it figured out. Not all who pursue me fast enough. No. All can come. Repent and believe. Jesus calls. He decides. He chooses. And then he says, Jesus gets all the credit. He says, Jesus appoints these men. Another translation gives us this idea. Jesus makes these men. He creates these 12 men. That's what the Greek means literally. He makes these men. Jesus takes those who repents and believes and He makes them into something new. Church, you have been made into something new. 2,000 years ago, you had Jews and Gentiles who hated each other, wanted to kill each other, were racist toward each other, and Jesus tells us, no, you two people, I have grabbed you, I have made you something new. One new man. That's the miracle of the church. We should hate each other out there. We should have nothing to do with each other out there. That's what the world expects. And yet we come, races, ethnicities, cultures, preferences, desires, skin color, bank accounts, doesn't matter. We come together because we are one new people. That's the miracle of the church. So everyone out there looks at us and goes, wow, somebody made something new there. So again, how important is church unity? important because fighting over preferences and fighting over music or color of the carpet or yada 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 fighting over those things who expects us to do that the world does because that's what the world does but we are something new not just the church jesus appoints these he chooses he points these, he creates these men into the bible says a new creation the old has gone and the new has come like we said earlier the only way that i'm going to be sinless in the new world is if jesus makes me new he creates us in new he gives us the holy spirit to begin a creation in me to make me fit for the citizen to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in other words when i come to christ repent and believe i'm filled with the holy spirit and i am being made into a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the power and mercy and grace of God. And finally, as we close, Jesus gets all the credit. And then we see something really fabulous. We see Jesus calling these men, Jesus making these men, and he does it for two reasons. He does it for two reasons. He says he makes these 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Brothers and sisters, believers, we must stop asking just asking the question, what did Jesus save us from? It's a good question to ask. It's an important question to ask. What did Jesus save us from? He saved me from hell. Save me from being alienated with God, from God forever. He saved me from those things. We need to start asking this question too. What did Jesus save us for? And those two questions go hand in hand. He saves you from and he saves you for. What did he save us for? Jesus says, you come be near me. Jesus saves us for fellowship with him, to be near him. The Son of God died on the cross to be near you. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't want you far away. 
He doesn't want you to live. He doesn't want to save you from hell and then you live your life separate from him. No, he calls you. He makes you new. He saves you. He redeems you. He keeps you to be near him. His commitment to you is total. Isn't that amazing? I'm not worth that. But he does it anyway. And that's the goal of existence. That's the goal of your life, to be near him. That's the goal of all of our lives. That's our purpose, to be in close relationship with God through Jesus. And it's Jesus' presence that brings joy and peace and purpose and life and righteousness. Bible says so. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you not have joy? Maybe because you're not in the presence of Jesus. Exodus 33, 14 says it this way. My presence, God says, will go out with you and I will give you rest. Are you not finding rest? Maybe it's because you're not finding yourself in the presence of Jesus enough. And then Psalm 23 says it this way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you fear evil? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Are you afraid? yourself in the presence of Jesus. Jesus wants to be near us. How amazing is that? Finally, Jesus saves us for what? To be sent out and preach the good news. Christian, if you are not looking for opportunities to share your faith, you are missing out on what you were saved for. Three fishermen, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We saw that a couple chapters ago. Jesus is going to say, go into all the world and preach the good news. In Romans it says it this way, how can someone believe if no one preaches? Not only preaches from here, you preach. We must not ask only what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. And we've been saved for inviting all people to repent and believe the good news that Jesus has offered to take the punishment for our sins, to turn away the wrath of God, says Romans, and to purchase for us eternal life in the kingdom of God. Are you being near Jesus? Are you preaching the good news. Maybe you're like me and you've got a lot of work to do here. Here are two opportunities that you can help us preach the good news. Mark this on your calendar. We'd love for you to be here. Two opportunities coming up. October 31st, that's Halloween, 4.30. We're going to be meeting out in this parking lot, right? Yeah, that parking lot. For trunk or treat. What does that mean? Buy some candy, open your trunk. We're going to be handing out information about our church, going to be telling them how, the neighborhood how much we love them. Safe alternative to trick-or-treating. Come, join us. You can decorate your trunk. L last two years, I was a snowman. You know, if I can make a fool of myself, you know, you can come and join me, right? I don't know what I'm going to be this year yet. Do we know? No. We're all princesses at my house. How can I match up with princesses? Come join us. Help us show our, neighbor, our neighborhood that we love them. It's a great first way to preach the gospel. And then finally, again, loving our neighborhood, November 9th. November, you're going to be hearing more about this. November 9th, 
we are going to have our Trinity Loves Pittsburgh Day where we are going to rake leaves in our neighborhood. Real simple, real focused. We're going to have rakes for you. Uh, we're going to be raking the leaves around. Maybe you can't rake leaves. Just come. Be present with us. We'd love for you to be there. So our final question. I've got three questions for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I've got three questions for us. Three questions. Number one. Number one. Jesus has invited you to become a child of God, to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, to have your sins forgiven, to be right with God forever. He has called you. Have you accepted that call? Have you repented and believed? Second question. Believers. Believers. In our busy lives, it is so easy to forget that Jesus has saved us for fellowship with Him. Are we spending time with Jesus? He, at His feet, we find rest. At His feet, we find joy. That's what He says. At His feet, we find purpose. And finally, believer. Do you realize that you are saved for something eternal? Do you realize you've been saved for something that will last forever? Do you realize you've been saved to become a fisher of men? Have you, do you realize that those people around you who are not believers, God has put you there to share the good news? Maybe that's scary. Here's a first step for you. Do the people around you know that you're a believer? Maybe this week you need to tell them. Maybe you'd be praying that God will bring up that conversation. Maybe an easy step is to say, hey, do you have a church family? If not, come with me. Let me show you what church is about. Maybe that's your first step. What we're going to do, we're going to enter a time of decision where we're going to invite you believers. We're going to invite you to make a commitment to sit at the feet of Jesus. We're going to invite you to remember what we are saved for. And non-believers, we're going to invite you this time. We're going to call you like Jesus calls us. Repent and believe.